0: Hello, this is Andrea Harkins. Welcome to the Martial Arts Women Podcast. This podcast is devoted to martial art women who make a difference. Today's podcast is with Dr. Ann Maria Rousey Demars. She's a world judo champion, a PhD statistics professor, and entrepreneur. Anne Maria co-authored the book Winning on the Ground training, and techniques for judo and MMA fighters, as well as other books. She is the mother of four children, four daughters, one of whom is Rhonda Rousey. She's currently a judo coach at Gompers Middle School and the co-founder and president of Seven Generation Games, making software to teach math, social studies, and English for students in grades three through eight. I am super excited to talk to anne Maria about her martial arts and her career, her competitions, her life. And I'm sure you will be inspired, too. So let's get started with my interview of Ann Maria DeMars. Hi, Anne Maria. Welcome to the Martial Arts Woman podcast. Hey, Andrea. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm great. Good. <laughs> great. Everybody's always busy, so... Um, I, I really appreciate your time. I just wanted to thank you so much. I have an a- audience of martial art women who are really going to be inspired by your stories and your insights on martial arts and all of the things that you've done. It's very inspiring to listen to these types of stories. And I'm very thankful to have the opportunity. Well, that's a high bar. I'll try. It. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you can reach the bar. Um, I think yours, obviously, is a perfect story of perseverance and use of what I call the martial art mindset from your judo championship to the entrepreneur you are today. But I thought it would be great, as always, to start from the beginning. And I understand you began training when you were about 12. Many things about your 12-year-old person that you were, and I understand your brothers called you stumpy. Uh, and you were spent a lot of time in your room and eating and reading books. And somehow you got pushed into martial arts. So how did that, that happen?
1: Well, I think I'm a good example of you don't have to be a certain like super athlete type to go into judo or probably other martial arts and be successful. I was prior to Title IX when mm-hmm. I was a kid. So lots of sports could just say we don't allow girls. And most okay. of them did. And the only options I had were swimming. And I was a short, fat little girl. And of course, fat little girls, you not want to put on swimsuits. And then there was track, which if you're short and fat, you don't run very fast. And then the judo club allowed girls to join, which, again, is bizarre to me. But most of the time I was coming up for about the first 10 years, there might be a women's competition or there might not, depending on if they decided to allow it, which when I think about it, gives a little indication. I mean, you look at how things are right now and and think that you know society's in a mess, but it used to be worse.
0: Yeah, well, that's really interesting <laughs> that the judo club of all places allowed the girls. Well, and yeah,
1: here's a weird thing about me: I never actually have had an Asian, Amer- an Asian or Asian American instructor, even when I lived <laughs> in Japan. <That> <laughs> crazy. And yeah. um, Yeah, my first year in it was not deliberate or anything. It's just a very odd coincidence, just like my friend Lynn Rothke is the only person I know who's never actually been injured, Um, you know, that's fought at an Olympic level. So anyway, the instructor had gone to Japan and uh, in the Air Force and got his black belt there and come back to his hometown and started teaching judo and his sister wanted to do judo. So that's why he allowed girls to join. So his oh. sister would have other girls to train with. And by the time I came along, his sister was a black belt. So it was very unusual. Yeah, that I did from day one, there was a woman black belt in front of me on the mat because that was just not very common. It's still not very common in judo.
0: Right. It really isn't. And I love to hear the stories about how women walk into the the school and they're one of the few there, but somehow... Just continue to practice because of the love of what they're doing now now you continued your practice obviously since age 12 and and we just talked a little bit about that and through your college years and participated in a lot of competitions before we talk about winning your gold medal though in 1984 at the world judo championships I wanted to just highlight some of your other competitions and I think I updated this from your email but at age of 16, you won a uh, division at USJA Junior Nationals. You won U.S. Collegiate Nationals, U.S. Senior Nationals, and U.S. Open. In 1981, a bronze medal at the British Open. Uh, in 83, the Pan American Games and U.S. Senior Nationals. You won 84, the Austrian Open, Canada Cup, and the U.S. Senior Nationals. Why was competing so important to you? What did it mean to you as a a practitioner, but also as a martial art woman?
1: I think when I was young, well, I don't think I know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I had a very large chip on my shoulder. I did not come from the most advantaged background. I went to Washington University in St. Louis on a scholarship. Wash U has the dubious distinction of being the least equal school in the country. It's, It's an excellent academic school, but I think they have the highest proportion of students from the the upper 20% of the income distribution and the lowest percent from low-income students. So Mm -hmm. just for a lot of reasons, I had a very large chip on my shoulder growing up. And judo gave me a chance to go out and prove that not only was I as good as everybody else, I was better. And now I'm old and I don't care. But when I was young, I needed that.
0: Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Sometimes you have to overcome what you see in front of you and, and move past it. And a lot of times those situations fuel the training and it seemed to work pretty well for you. (laughs) Well, I think
1: it's um, Freud who had a lot of things wrong, but he did talk a lot about catharsis, about Mm -hmm. being psychologically upset about things and, and things being a way of releasing that and you could go and punch people or you could go into into the judo school and throw people around and choke them an arm bar and win medals for your country so fortunately for me at a fairly young age I went from directing it one way to directing it the other
0: yeah so a much better uh, way of directing your energy for sure
1: well, and I've tried to do that with a lot of kids over the years, and I've seen a lot of kids come into my mm-hmm. club at different times that were angry, and they stay angry for a long time, but they get to release a lot of their anger on the mat, and that's
0: that's a good thing. Yeah, that's that's a great thing, really. And even people who aren't angry, my personal martial art practice, I, I do it because it helps me relieve a lot of stress. You know, along with the physical part, the mental part, it just has a lot of components that improve you in so many ways and very important for kids as well
1: well and that's my case now I mean I don't really have that much to be angry about anymore but yeah I mean I will be sitting at my desk all day and trying to solve some problem and I'm trying to get this game to work and I can't figure out why it's not doing it and or I've got a hundred people that want to talk to me and budgets that need to be done. And I need to figure out if we can hire another person and how I'm going to make that happen. And yeah, it's just nice to get up and get out and you know, move around. So I'm not saying that's the only benefit by a very, very mm-hmm. long shot. Right.
0: Exactly. Well, before we get into your business and your entrepreneurship, we'll go back for a minute to the 1984 uh, USA win at the world judo championships where you won a gold medal. And honestly, I I just watched the video this morning for the first time and my heart was pounding watching it, even though I knew what the conclusion was. Uh, it was a very exciting and looked like it was a little bit difficult for you to <clears throat> manipulate, if that's the right word, uh, your <laughs> opponent initially. But And so it was very exciting and I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts about what that was like. Um, And at times the crowd was booing and, and do you hear the crowd? So just share some of your insights about that day.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, Sue Williams was the toughest person I ever fought. And I had fought her earlier in the year at the, what is the Pacific rims? And I won those Mm -hmm. two on a decision and she was the only person I think in over a year that I hadn't beat by a full point. And then I went into the world championships and I did have a couple of matches. I won on decision, and then I had her in the finals. And so here I am it's the final it's the final of the world championships. It's the toughest person I've competed against in my fourteen years of competition but I just figured, you know, and I remember right in the middle of the match and I'm very Catholic. So I'm mm-hmm. um, saying a prayer and going for it because I just figured at some point you, you realize that it's really, it's really close and you can either fight to not lose or fight to win. And so I tried everything I could to throw a repitter. And there were several times in the match when I was on top and she had my leg hooked. And if you know Judo, if, if, you, if you're on top pinning them but they have your leg trapped, it doesn't count. Okay. And Because the idea is you can't get up either. And that happened several times where I almost had her, I almost had her, and then at the end, they called for decision and both of the referees gave it to me. What they did then is the referee in the middle would call for decision and both of the judges mm-hmm. hold up a flag for either white or red. And if the judge, if both the judges give it to one person, then the referee doesn't vote. So I got both referees and that was it. And I was done. And, you know, going up to that, like before, I don't know if I could swear on your podcast. guess. Um, yeah. you, can, you can bleep it yeah. out. So okay. going into the finals, the U.S. coach says to me, you know, even if you lose this match, you'll have tied with the best any Americans ever done." With the silver medal in the world championships and i said mm-hmm. if i lose this match i am lost and he right. said well that's another way to look at it <laughs> <laughs> and the, i will say one thing about sue williams though from australia she did go on and win the olympics i think the next time around because by then i was out having war babies right. um, and she was a really class act because we were in the drug testing after the the finals and she she had gotten silver in the world championships two years before when I was having another baby. And
0: Mm -hmm.
1: she said, you know, when I didn't win last time, I thought I got robbed, but she said this, you know, it was close. It was so close. It could have gone either way. She's, I can't, you know, I can't say you didn't deserve it. And I thought that was a class thing to say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's super. It's I'm sure it's hard to say that.
1: Yeah. Um, Especially when
0: you work so hard for something.
1: And that that drives me crazy too. And I, there are a lot of people I know who will not admit that they lost. Mm-hmm. Oh, nobody ever beat me. I just beat myself because I made a mistake. Well, if you, the other person made one less mistake than you, then they won.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, you just have to you have to own it, right? Because how are you
1: going to get yeah. better if you don't face up to it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the actual
1: um, crazy thing is, and when I look back on it now, you know, at the time, I did a lot of this stuff because it's what I had to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But now I look back, it's nuts. Like, Mario was less than two months old when I won the U.S. Open. I had a baby and I was back on the mat six days later.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> and at the time, everybody, <laughs>
1: said, everybody said that. And I was like, no, this is what I got to do. I got to win the U.S. Open, spot back on the team, and,
0: and I did. Yeah. But. Um, yeah. well. right. But it's, yeah, that's something. Well, that's drive. It's ambition. It's, it's, I don't know, desire, co- competition. It's all of those things. So after the uh, 1984 World Championships, Judo World, World Championships, um, I think you started coaching Ronda after that. Was, was that the next step after your Well, she your wasn't born though?
1: for a few more years. Right. Um, so when she was almost 11, she wanted to start Judo. And I told her she was really good at swimming. She made the Junior Olympics uh, team for Los Angeles. And, of course, Los Angeles is huge in swimming. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. She'd been swimming for, let's see, she started when she was six, I think. So she'd been swimming almost five years. And I told her, you know, swimming has scholarships. You're good at it. You're at a great place to do swimming. We just moved to L.A. And she said, no, you know, it's something that she used to, you know, her father would get up at five in the morning, take her to practice. And, you know, he had passed away and it was more like this is something I did with dad. And so he wanted to try judo. She saw me teaching judo at my friend Tony's club when I would go and visit there. And I said, no, everybody will expect you to win the world champion, you know, win the junior nationals, your first time out. Uh, it'd be a lot of pressure on you. Stick with what you do. And my friend, Hayward Nishioka, who had been on the world team and in the Olympics and coach the world team. And he says to me, Amber, no one remembers you. Let the kid do it. <laughs> so anyway, she did. And, you know, when she yeah. first started, she was just my baby. So nobody really paid that much attention to her. So I would teach her stuff you know, now and then. Mm-hmm. Mostly for the first year, um, I took it to friends of mine who were really good, had really good standing technique, because I don't know if you this, but I, I had a, a really severe injury when I was young, so I blew my knee out, which is why I only, oh. pretty much only did mat work. And so I didn't want her to be an imitation of me, because a lot of my style was because I had this disability, right? So that went yeah. And I saw too many kids, who were held back because their parent tried to make them into a little version of them. So I took her to all my friends that had really good standing technique and had to work with them. And then when she, you know, I taught her one or two things. And then when she had been in Judo a couple of years, I said, you're going to go into the high school nationals. So by then she was almost 13. And I said, people are going to try to arm bar you because that's the first time you could do arm bars is high school nationals. And even okay. then they didn't let kids under 17 do them, but the high school nationals were um, a tournament to get on the junior world team. So I said, you, your eighth grade year, I said, I'm going to arm bar you every time you breathe, every time you turn around, you're going to be in an arm bar. By- oh boy. She would tell me all the way home from practice how so much. She hated me.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then can she, imagine.
1: she went into the high school nationals and she went to the hot knife through butter. And I told her, people are angry at me for saying this, but I said, you know, kiddo, I want you, by the end of the day, I want everybody in this gym to know your name. I want you to hurt people and break things today. And that sounds like a really mean thing to say to a kid. But judo is a sport where you're allowed to throw people into the ground and armbar them. And the Junior World Team, that's the first tournament for the Junior World Team. A lot of those kids are out for blood. You know, they want to, and I know this because I was that person, they see some young kid and they want to get in their head because they know that kid someday is going to be better, right? So if I, can, if I can beat you in eight seconds, the next time you see me, that's going to be in your head. You know, if I arm bar you and hurt you, the next time you yeah. see me, that's going to be in your head. So I figure right. if anybody's going to be in anybody's head, it's not going to be my little
0: pumpkins. Right. <laughs> it's a mindset game then. Yeah. It, Mental. I, mean, I, I do think,
1: because <laughs> your around is left-handed. She mm-hmm. has really good standing technique. A lot of things that I don't, um, you know, we're very different in a lot of ways. And I have a really good friend who competed internationally the same time I did. And his daughters coincidentally are about to Rhonda. And we were watching, he was watching her compete at a tournament once. And one of my other friends that was a competitor back then was watching too. And she says, I really don't see any resemblance. I mean, Rhonda's tall and blonde. I'm short and dark. She has a <laughs> Right. And then um, right then, Rhonda jumps on this, goes <laughs> back and arm bars her and Valley laughs and says, oh, I see it now. Oh, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Lanny, my other friend that was standing there, says, no, there's more than that. He says, the thing that you and your daughter have in common is you both attack with wicked intentions. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not like, oh, I hope this works. It's you're going down. Yeah, And I think it is a
0: mindset. So I understand currently you you still teach judo, but this time at a middle school. And when did you begin doing that? And what is your experience like with those kids?
1: Well, I started just helping out there. So 2009, Rhonda came back from the Olympics and her older sister, who's a year older, was teaching at Gompers Middle School in South Los Angeles. And she said... I would really like to have an after-school program. Rhonda had come down for a unit Jen taught on um, Japan, on medieval mm-hmm. Japan, and she lifted Jennifer up over in the up in the air over her shoulders and showed some judo. And of course, you know, seeing their teacher like hoisted up in the air, the students just thought that's the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> and so she asked Rhonda if she could knew anybody who would be willing to teach there for free because the school had no money. Yeah, and Rhonda said she'd do it. Mm-hmm. So she taught there once or twice a week for a couple of years, starting in 2009. And then her MMA career started to take off and I was teaching at USC just right up the road um, where I was working in there in statistics. And she said, you know, she, she'd call me up and say, oh, mom, I got this thing. Can you run down and teach judo for me? And that just started happening more and more. And then oh, okay. her, her MMA career really off. I think it was about 2011, maybe, she just couldn't do it anymore. She was traveling all around the country and doing all these TV things. And so then I took it over. And so the last nine years, it's been me teaching there. And first I was doing it once a week, and then it got to be twice a week. And it's just, it's all the time I can manage. Yeah, thing we're super proud of, uh, that neighborhood doesn't have a particular reputation for academic excellence. I always say, mm-hmm. like, I think some years the high school dropout rate is 40% or more. of the kids that have stayed with our tutor program have graduated high school.
0: Wow, that's great.
1: And three young men, all who happen to be Black, graduated high school this year. And among the three of them, they got accepted at 14 universities. Wow. So we're super proud of them. And, yeah, Rashad, Ryan, and Skylar, if you're listening, yay, you guys.
0: Yay, great job. And
1: one of our girls last year, Leslie, got accepted at Stanford. So she just finished her year there, her first year there. Um, Another one of our guys, William, is at UC Irvine. Um, Jose is doing his, should be going into his senior year now in business at Cal State LA. So uh, our focus at Gompers is teaching judo. Basically, it's getting kids to do something productive and healthy after school twice Mm -hmm. a week. And it's because twice a week because it's absolutely all I can do. Oh, Jose Gonzalez, who's one of the teachers there, he now does a third day a week that's conditioning. So we went from one practice a week to two to three, and it's not focused on getting everybody to win the world championships. It's focused on getting people to be a strong mind and a strong body. You know, my right. my daughter Julia did judo for seven years before she switched. I when she was four and at eleven, she switched to soccer. And then she played soccer through all four years of college. And somebody said a great thing about Julia to me once when she was about 11 years old. He said, Julia is what we want to develop in judo. Kids who are strong but not mean. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we try and develop at Gompers.
0: That's wonderful. And what a great testimony to the work that you're doing there and the teaching. Um, and the students need it, and they're progressing and excelling because of it.
1: Yeah, we have great kids. I wish, I wish we were back now, but eventually school will open again.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so let's move on to some, before we get into transitioning to some of your business information. Um, some general martial art women questions because the podcast is called the martial arts woman and part of my outreach is to help women practice martial arts or finally begin doing that if that's something that they'd like to do and get over that hump of fear and worry and concern about what to expect and and all of those types of things so generally why do you think being a martial art woman today is so important
1: well, speaking as someone who has been in business and been in the tech field years ago, it sounds off topic, but it's not at all. I mm-hmm. was at the all women's tournament in Michigan and I was doing for the black belt division. So I'm you know, putting people by weight and putting them together who they're going to fight first round and so on. And we line them up and I'm talking to all these women and pretty much every one of them was in a non-typical field for a woman. Like one of them was the I uh, I don't know what to call them, not foreman, but anyway, that the, the yeah. head of a road crew doing road construction. One of them was a general contract contractor doing housing construction. There were a couple of people who were programmers, you know, software developers. And I think a lot of that is attributable to they were accustomed to being in situations where they were the only woman. And they were not put off by it, they were not scared away by it. So I think one thing that being a woman in martial arts does is it gives you the confidence to succeed in male dominated fields, which are a lot of the more interesting, uh, more lucrative certainly fields. So I think that's one really positive thing. Mm-hmm. I think one thing I've always told all of my four daughters is no one has the right to beat you. And I mean that in two ways. I mean it in the sense of, no one, I don't care if they won the Olympics five times before today, they don't get a score on the board when you step on that mat. You have every much as right to win as that person. But I also mean nobody has the right to lay a hand on you. Right. And I what I see often, not always, but you know, I'm a statistician, right? So I deal in probabilities. People who are choosing victims are generally cowards. Bullies are generally cowards. So they're picking somebody they think won't fight back. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff online. There's this whole Gamergate thing. There's a lot of things where women in tech are threatened. Their families are threatened. That happens to me not at all. Mm -hmm. Because I will stab you. And I mean that seriously. If somebody showed up at my house and my little Julie's here, I would stab them in the heart. And it would not have been good. And I think... Being, and I probably a lot of your um, listeners grew up in a lot more functional environments and don't know how that works, <laughs> right? Still, Maybe,
0: maybe not. I don't know. If
1: you would be willing to fight back, mm-hmm. people are less likely to pick you as a victim. They're going to look for the person that they think will, um,
0: you know, yeah. will get in
1: easier. People who are predators tend to be looking for someone that they think they can manipulate. And one of the things, it's not just physically, I think with with martial arts, you also get a certain amount of self-confidence. That I, you know, Bud Hirsch, who wrote Cultural Literacy, I definitely did not agree with everything he wrote, but one thing he said that rang true is that self-esteem is not something your mother gives you. It doesn't come from special curriculum. It comes from achieving a difficult task. If you can get a black belt, if you can throw somebody three times your weight, if you can win the world championships, those things contribute to knowing that you are an accomplished, successful person, and accomplished, successful people are less likely to fall victims or remain as victims of people who are predators, manipulative, Mm -hmm. abusive. Now, there's no guarantee of that. Beck Rawlings, I really admire her for this, spoke out about being abused by her husband, and she was in the UFC. So I'm not saying it's a guarantee, right? I think those people tend to look for someone who is less, um, you know, less likely to fight back. That's an easier kill, so to speak. And right. I also think that even if you are in that kind of manipulative, abusive relationship, that being successful in martial arts, having sort of that core strength helps you get out of it.
0: Yeah, great, great insights. I know that martial arts build confidence and when you have that confidence and you have the ability to defend, and as you said, success in, the, in that area that you can apply that to your life. So very important concepts.
1: But I, I wanna add a caveat to that though, because mm-hmm. sometimes people ask me about somebody they know or some young girl or woman that they yeah. know if they should go into martial arts. It can go the other way. You know, um, you have martial arts schools and there've been a number of high profile cases where the instructor sort of takes advantage of women. Yeah. And that is kind of like, and I say this very sadly because I am Catholic, it's kind of like the same thing that you see in the Catholic Church. You see it in gymnastics, you see it in mm-hmm. martial arts. Anytime you have someone who is put up at another level, that there is that potential for abuse. So right. I would say, right. too, if you feel like your instructor is stepping over boundaries, they don't get special privileges because they have a black belt or they're called o-sensei or whatever. Correct. You know, somebody said to me, or it was on Quora, but somebody posted a um, question about their sensei didn't allow them to wear nail polish because he didn't like it or something. And I said, your sensei is not quote me on that. Yes. Because who are they to say? So I think that's the other thing, though, to be cautious of. is yes. Sometimes you have instructors that cross that line. And I am the designated bitch in every room. And by that, I mean, there are people who won't speak out. I will. Well, I don't want to say that. Maybe I won't. If I speak out against sensei moshi moshi, maybe mm-hmm. I won't be able to. Um, yes. You know, I won't get promoted. I won't get my referee certification. I won't this. Yeah. You know, go to another gym.
0: I have definitely heard those stories before as well. And, and women have even contacted me to say, you know, my sensei does this, or he says, I can't do that, do this. And I said, well, it's not where you need to be. Right. Um, so it is important to actually do the research and to make sure you can kind of get testimonials from other people, if possible, you know, really research the schools and before you go there. And of course, if something seems out of line, then it is out of line. And, and that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. And leave. You know, I was talking Mm -hmm. this in this case, it happened to be a young man, but I
1: was talking to someone who was at a club that I personally feel is very cult-like. And I said, Why don't you leave? You're so unhappy there. You find it so detrimental to you. Um and he did leave eventually, but he said, But I see the way I hear the way they talk about people that leave. I don't want them to talk about me like that. I said, What do you care? You won't be there anymore. Right. Right. But I think people get into that, this is their circle you'll find another an circle. Mm-hmm. All Right. Right. There off are the so day. many.
0: Yeah, yeah. There are so many schools out there and you can definitely find another place. That's why I try to tell people, just because you start somewhere, just because you go there, y- you don't have to stay there. It's just a place. And there are plenty of styles, plenty of schools, plenty of things you can do. And it's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up because I really haven't brought that up in any of the podcasts. And it is very, very important. I kind of skipped past some of the conversation I was going to ask about um, just your life in general. I know you've had some difficult times as we all have, but uh, you've had to raise your daughters. Uh, um, I know your husband passed away first husband and you had to work several jobs to support the kids and pay the bills. And how was martial art martial arts or judo affecting your life during that time? Well, for
1: a lot of people and i'd be one of them once you become best in the world at something it gives mm-hmm. you the confidence that you can achieve difficult things and certainly you know raising three small children after you know first when my husband was was really ill and then we passed mm-hmm. away was a difficult thing so i think it certainly gave me that confidence i was certainly used to working crazy when i was competing First, I was going to school full-time and working full-time and on the U.S. team, so doing that level of training. And then I was working full-time and a mom and on the U.S. team. And so (laughs) I was used to doing crazy hours. A funny thing, people always ask me, well, how do you find so much time just to feel? I don't watch TV. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm the habit because I was – going to school full-time and working full-time. And so when people talk about Game of Thrones or whatever right. reality show is they're watching, you know, I watch something if my daughter Rhonda's on it. Other than that, yeah. I watch TV. So just that mm-hmm. habit of putting in lots and lots of hours made it easier because I wasn't like, oh, woe is me. I can't go to the theater. I can't go see the latest movie. I can't do this because I never ever did those things. Yeah. Now, I don't know that that was good. And my youngest daughter is 22. So I got married again and she is the baby
0: mm-hmm. and
1: extremely spoiled. Right. And sometimes we talk about stuff like, you know, she's 22. She's at work now. Woohoo, got a job. Yay. She graduated from college. So she's a dead kid, right? But sometimes she'll complain about stuff or you know, she doesn't know how to do things. I say, Julia. I left home when I was 15 and got a job, you know. But when I was yeah, your age, yeah. I had been married for two years, I had a master's degree, I did all this. But then I will always you know say not that I'm recommending that. So yeah. the you know, spending my time competing and while I was working full time certainly accustomed me to doing the hard things, you know, putting in the long hours. And when my husband passed away, and I had to all of a sudden provide, or even before that, when he was ill, you know, when I all of a sudden had to provide both incomes for our two-income family to cover the mortgage and that, right? It was. I didn't see it as impossible. It never crossed my mind to declare bankruptcy or, you know, just sit on the couch and cry and um woe is me. I mean, I did that for the week after he died, but then I just picked myself up because yeah, that's the other thing when you lose. I mean, I. Lost a few matches and cried all the way home from, you know, France to Los Angeles and, you know, felt bad for three or four days. And then I had to pick myself up and go at it again. And I think that's the other thing you get if you compete at a high level. You're not going to win every time. And sometimes you lose and you just got to pick it up.
0: And then transitioning to now your business because you're an entrepreneur. You evolved from martial art champion to really a champion of sorts in your career. You've earned a PhD. You started your own companies. Tell, it, tell me a little bit and the listeners about your companies and, and what they're about and why they're so important.
1: Well, we're doing two really cool things. Um, I noticed when I was teaching that I'd see kids that they're going to be an architect. They're going to be an aeronautical engineer. They're going to be an astronaut. They're going to be a pediatrician. They're going to be all these things. Mm -hmm. And then that same kid that was saying that in middle school, when they're a senior in high school, they're going to become a truck driver. Or when they're freshmen in college, they're majoring in communications. And I asked them why, almost invariably, because math was an obstacle for them, that they did their first semester of college and they completely could not do Calc 1, which was required for an engineering major. Mm -hmm. They were just completely out of the water and i heard so many times well i don't have a math brain and that's just so much bull there's no special math brain it's you didn't have the foundation somewhere you missed understanding fractions or algebraic equations and because you don't have that basis you know it's like if i'm trying to teach somebody a combination in judo but they don't know the two throws that are supposed to be put together it's not that they don't have a combination brain it's that they didn't get that foundation so I wanted to develop computer games. I went, you know, there's all, all this stuff about startups. And at the time, you know, the tech bubble was going on. And all these people were getting funded. And I went and pitched to a few places and basically heard, you know what? We know what people who found tech companies look like. They're not Latina grandmas. They're young, white, <laughs> men, or young, white or Asian men who dropped out of Stanford or Harvard. And you know, I always say I look more like Mark Zuckerberg's maid than Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and so I said, screw it, people, I'm gonna do it anyway. And I spent an hour every morning before doing my regular job, which was statistical consulting. I mean, I'd been writing software, right? Just not to make games. Mm-hmm. Spent an hour every morning teaching myself JavaScript, teaching myself about game design, and then um applied for federal funding, got a grant, talked to my husband into doing it with me. So I do Um, the back-end educational stuff, the PHP, SQL, the um, JavaScript, the setting up the math problems and scoring them. And he does the 3D programming game part Mm because I said, I'm interested in all of it. You pick what you want to do. And, yeah, the first two games, it was just the two of us developing it. And then we roped in Maria to help with design. And um, Justin Flores, who I actually knew from – he was in, on the World Geo team, he's so a really good artist. So we contracted with him to do the artwork for the first couple. And yeah, we did that. Then we did a Kickstarter campaign. We did a couple more games, got some federal funding, and we probably had over 15,000 users and half a dozen games on the market before we got our first dollar in investor funds.
0: Wow. And That's I great. think
1: that goes back to the martial arts experience too, that, you know, founding a, a gaming company an educational technology company is generally not a thing that women do, particularly not older women. And mm-hmm. I was not willing to have people tell me you can't, do that, because I've been having people tell me I couldn't do stuff my whole life.
0: Right. And as a winner, you know, you know better. <laughs> well, and so it's it's
1: really cool. Um, Seven Generation You've got another month about to get the games for free because when the coronavirus hit, the other thing that we we're wondering is, what could we do to help, right? Mm-hmm. It just didn't seem to be the time to say, how can we milk this crisis? So generally, at the end of the school year, people aren't adding new software, right? They're going to add a right. new school year, but not the last two months. So we put up all our games for free. And of course, the number of downloads skyrocketed. And we were able to afford it because we all the conferences and stuff we'd normally go to and pay money for got canceled, right? So, yeah, yeah. so we didn't to pay for that. So we thought, we'll put the games up for free for two months. So there's that. And then the other really cool thing we're doing that's kind of under wraps, so I will tell you now, because it will shortly be out of wraps, Okay, is um, we're doing games for decision making to help therapists. Because
0: oh, what
1: happens is you have parents who are court-ordered to treatment, say. And so they've got their 12, 13-year-old kids sitting out in the waiting room. The parent's there. Maybe they don't want to be there, but the court says it's either there or jail. And even if those kids go into treatment, generally you're required right off the bat, you have to give them some standardized tests, you know, depression measure, anxiety measure, get all their uh, data, how old are you, you, um, you know. Anyway, so that's instead of starting therapy with, well, what brings you here today? And yeah how do you feel about that you want to accomplish they get shoved a stack of um papers so we thought well we can develop a game and in the middle in the midst of the game you can fill out these majors and then also there will be things that might happen say you're at a party and you don't see any adults you know and it's at your house and you're kind of creeped out but what do you do so we developed these games and we're in the middle of testing them right now so that's our other thing that we're doing, hoping that this will increase persistence in therapy because instead of your first meeting with your therapist being shoved a stack of papers that look like homework, you'll be playing these games on your own and your therapist can just kind of talk about what's with mm-hmm. you. And then they'll also get the information from the games and they can talk about that with you if they want.
0: That's very cool. Mm-hmm. And actually, I watched a video this morning and it kind of walked through one. It was a video you were in uh talking about your business and such and so it showed some of the some of the games and i thought wow that's really cool i can see why kids would want to play these and that's the key to the whole thing right to get the kids to want to do this and that way they learn what they need to learn
1: well and there's two more cool things we're doing that are happening so mm-hmm. i'm sure that some of your listeners have kids we have a game design course that we're doing uh the first the sessions are going in our fall, but we have Another session that starts in mid-July, they can sign up for that. It's free if they're between 11 and 15. And there's a session for younger kids and one for older kids. And they actually work with us to design a game. And their design will be... So we've got a couple of games that we're in the middle of, and we're working with kids to design the next level. So oh, that's
0: very cool. Yeah,
1: it's pretty fun. Well, the idea is... And nobody but me seems to be a big fan of The Little Prince. Antoine de Santa's mm-hmm. Isidro, But he said that if you want to teach men to build ships you don't organize committees to cut down logs and set up shipbuilding classes you teach them to long for the open expanse of the sea and I thought that was brilliant and most of the people I know who became really successful software developers Mm -hmm. it was because they wanted to make something yeah so that's what we're trying to do is bring in kids and I'm Each class, it's super cool. We have kids from three or four times, probably four or five time zones in every class. So kids from everywhere, from Wyoming to the
0: Philippines. Yeah, awesome. Very awesome. Very cool. And I'll be happy to post some of your links for you and and some of your information on this podcast as well. So I think we've talked about a lot of different things. I just wanted to ask you maybe to provide some final inspiration to the martial art women listeners out there. Um about life or martial arts or judo or whatever it might be, but maybe just a little bit of inspiration to uh, help them move forward.
1: Well, you know, I was gonna post a blog about this and I don't know maybe if this will help your listeners as much, mm-hmm. but maybe it will. Well, I will tell you one thing. All right, if you are a top competitor, this is the biggest mistake that I made. And that is when I was competing and really for a long time after, um, even as a coach, I judged, I paid attention to people only within how good they were in Judo. Like if somebody was really good in Judo, I was interested in talking to them, even if they were a jerk otherwise. Um, yeah. I was interested in picking their brain, getting to know them, because I wanted to get better at Judo. And maybe that helped me become a world champion because I was so focused. But mm-hmm. after I was competing, there's absolutely no excuse for this. I still continued that way. And there's so many people that it took me years to realize, like Roy Hash, who is a good coach. He was not an Olympic-level coach or anything. He was in the Special Forces for 20 years. He's amazing. He's like a real-life Captain America. My friend Karen Mackey, um, we run a U.S. team together, but she was the um, tribal attorney for the Omaha Nation. She's Mm -hmm. an enrolled member of the Santee Sioux. She's a board member of the Urban Names. So anyway, my point is there were so many people that was so cool that I had the opportunity to get to know outside the sport. And I was yeah. just so focused that I missed that. So I think that was the stupidest
0: thing that I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people do that. And part of the mission of this particular podcast, the Martial Arts and Women Podcast is to share stories of martial art women more than just their practice, but about their lives and about how they apply martial arts to life and all of those types of things. So it does open the door for the world out there to hear more martial art women's stories, because it's just something that's not done a lot. And I think it's very important to understand the full person and get to know them better. So. Hopefully that this podcast and our discussion today will remind people to look at the whole person and get to know all of, all about them because they're fascinating, especially martial art women. Well, I have one thing that
1: might be a more general help. I don't know if everybody, if, if many people are as stupid as I was about that part, <laughs> but <laughs> I think a lot of people have this issue. And Bruce Toots was director of development of USA Judo when I was younger and mm-hmm. I, and beat myself up about things. You know, if I won 99, I couldn't tell you the vast majority of the matches that I won, but I could tell you every match I ever lost. You know, I could tell you every stupid thing I ever did. And I have a PhD and I published articles and a lot of smart stuff, but every stupid comment I ever made. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was saying something to Bruce one time about something I had done and I'm so dumb and I can't believe this. And he said to me, and look how far you have come. Mm Mm-hmm. And I say that to myself all the time now because it's easy for me to get discouraged because there's so many things I want to do, right? And yeah. you can't succeed at everything all the time. And anytime, you know, I'll look back and think about just whatever stupid thing I did years ago. And and I now I catch myself to do that. I always quote Bruce and say, and look how far you've come. So I think if you're the kind of person that's always revisiting, oh, I did this dumb thing that... Remind Mm -hmm. yourself, look where you
0: are now. Yeah, that's great advice and something I could use myself, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, It's definitely a great way to end the podcast today because the final note of reminding the listeners just to look how far you have come. So I really appreciate that. Well, Anne Maria, I have had so much fun and I really thank you for all the information and sharing all your insights today. It's so important. To hear the stories of martial art women and share them and I really appreciate it well it was great talking
1: to you thanks so much for having me
0: okay we'll catch up again soon and have a wonderful day you too bye all right bye